Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 38 is where we're going to be this morning. Acts 20, 17 to 38. How things are built actually matters. The structure of something actually matters. In the town of Pisa, Italy, there is a tower that leans. You've probably heard of it. The Leaning Tower of Pisa. It is an architectural marvel. People from around the world flock to Pisa, Italy to look at this tower, to take pictures in front of it, to show themselves holding it up, or perhaps pushing it down. It was completed in 1372. And it began to lean during the construction that lasted almost 200 years. During the construction, it started to lean because the ground underneath it was too soft for the weight of the structure. So as they began to build the tower one side of it began to sink. By 1990, the tower was tilted five and a half degrees. When you look at it, it looks much worse than five and a half degrees. I think five and a half degrees sounds okay, uh, but it was five and a half degrees. Since then, they have some engineers have come in and added weights to one side of it to basically sink the other side and to add support on the other side to kind of prop it up a little bit and they've got it just short of four degrees now you can actually buy a ticket to go inside which is i guess like buying a lottery ticket you could be the one that it just falls over no thank you i don't want to be a part of that you know the leaning tower of pisa is an architectural marvel People flock from everywhere to see it and take pictures in front of it. But you know what's interesting? Nobody's really trying to make another one. In fact, the people that built it were failures. That was not the goal that they set out for at the beginning. The reality was the structure and its foundation was not considered. And at any moment, we all know, we could hear, and I kind of expect it to be in 2020, to be honest with you, that the Leaning Tower of Pisa has just fallen over. And it wouldn't come as a surprise. Certainly not this year. When we build something, we want to ensure that it lasts. And the only way we can do that is by building it on an appropriate structure and foundation. Church polity, that is how a church is structured, how it's governed, is not the most engaging of topics in a church. It's not the topic that puts you on the edge of your seat. It hasn't always been the most popular topic here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. 
However, the structure of a church matters. In this series, as we're considering the DNA of the church, you can't go much further before considering the church's structure, how it is built, how its leadership is organized. Because the structure of the local church tells you what you can expect about its longevity. Let's read from our passage this morning in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 38. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I, this is Paul speaking, how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards, toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how He Himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when He had said these things, He knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word He had spoken, that they would not see His face again. And they accompanied Him to the ship. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, as we consider the text that is before us, I pray for our hearts that we would receive the word with gladness, that we would cherish it as from you. Pray that you would speak in place of me to all of us here gathered together in your name. That we as a church would take up your word as a responsibility to be lived out in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. There are many things happening in the book of Acts, but there are two large questions that Luke is addressing in this book as a whole. The first question is how the good news of the kingdom of God being established in Christ is going to make its way to the ends of the earth. Remember at the beginning of the book, Jesus tells His disciples before He leaves, you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that becomes an outline for the book of Acts. And so there is a question that you're waiting to the end to see how is the gospel going to make it to the ends of the earth? And the second question is, how is it going to stay there? How is it going to endure? How is it going to last all the way through the end? How is the gospel and, its, and the churches that are established going to endure all the way to the end? Well, we find out the answer to the first question in fairly short order in the first third of the book when Saul of Tarsus is converted. You'll remember Jesus appears to him on the road uh, to Damascus and shows up to him in a, blind, in a blinding light and, and throws him off his, his animal and he blinds him right there on the road. And then as he's blinded, he goes into the town and the Lord appears to a man, a Christian named Ananias. And he appears to him and he tells Ananias to go to Saul of Tarsus and lay your hands on him that he can receive his sight again. Well, Ananias, having heard of Saul of Tarsus, is, has some reservations about the plan. All right? Jesus, are you sure? I know this man. I've heard of him. Are you sure it's this man that you want me to go to? And Jesus assures Ananias in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, and he says this. This is where we get our answer. He says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So the answer to the question, how is the gospel going to get to the ends of the earth, which includes the Gentiles, how is the gospel going to get there? Jesus' strategy appears to be mainly Saul of Tarsus as a catalyst for the gospel's exposure to the ends of the earth. Jesus' plan is not only to bring him to faith, but to appoint him as a messenger to the Gentiles and to suffer for his name. But then the question of how the gospel is going to endure all the way to the moment we're standing in right this very moment is less obvious. 
But I think it's in this passage that we've read this morning. Saul of Tarsus, whose Greek name is Paul, not his converted name, that's what a lot of people think, it's not his converted name, it's his Greek name, his Hebrew name is Saul, his Greek name is Paul, is coming to the end of his life in this passage. He knows that, that he's about to die. And there is some question as to whether or not the gospel can actually endure. And there's a question as to what's going to happen when Paul dies. And this applies to the rest of the apostles as well. You'll remember, this is the first generation. This is the generation closest to Jesus. These are the ones that actually saw Him after He had risen from the dead. They're coming upon the ends of their lives. They're about to die. That whole generation is facing extinction, and there is a question as to what happens now. Does the gospel that they lived and died for die after they're dead? Does it just disappear? In Acts 20, we have this scene here at the end of Paul's life where he's calling the Ephesian elders to him for one final charge. And I chose this passage for our discussion on leadership in the church because I think it succinctly displays the nature and function of the elders of the church. And from it, I think we can see a clear design and intention for how the New Testament church is to be structured to secure its longevity. So first, we need to establish two things in this passage. First, who who these elders are, and then we need to see what they do. Who they are, and what they do. And there's a couple of things when answering the question who they are, because we're just thrown right into the middle of this passage. We don't really get any context for who these elders are. And so to establish this, we're going to have to go to the rest of the book of Acts and even the New, some of the New Testament to see this. But in regards to who these elders are, the first thing that we can see is that the elders are a group of leaders in a local church. Elders are a group of leaders in a local church. Verse 16, just before our passage, so if you've got your Bible open to passage, you can look just up to verse 16. It tells us that Paul sailed past Ephesus because he was in a little bit of a hurry. And he was trying to make it back to Jerusalem, if possible, by the time Pentecost arrived. So he lands past Ephesus in a town called Miletos. And he has the Ephesian elders come to him. You can see it, hopefully, on the map there behind me. You can see, hopefully, that Miletos is a little bit closer to Jerusalem. It's a little bit... Uh, closer to the coast and a little bit less cumbersome to get to. So he sails into there and has the Ephesian elders come around to Miletos and meet him there. And there he's going to impart some words of wisdom to them. And what becomes apparent by the end of the passage is that this is the last time they're going to see him alive. And so these parting words from uh, these are parting words from Paul to the Ephesian elders. We see in verse 37 
and 38 that they are all weeping and sorrowful because they know they're not going to see His face ever again. This group of men are referred to by the term elders in verse 17. You see that there. And you may see the term from time to time, presbyter, which just means elder. It's in another language, but it just means elder. You'll see this same group of men in verse 28. If you look down at verse 28 in your passage, you'll see the same group of men also called by the term overseers. Or you may see sometimes, or in a different translation, you may have the term bishop, which is just an old English word that means overseer. So it's just overseer or bishop. And what becomes clear in the New Testament is that the terms elder, presbyter, overseer, and bishop are all referring to the same group of men. And if, any, if there is any distinction, elder is the office and refers to the title of this collective group, and overseer or bishop would reflect more of the function that they play in the church, what they do, their role in the church. But these words are used to describe them interchangeably. Now what you will also see in the New Testament to make matters even more complicated You'll see them referred to by the terms shepherd or pastor later on in the New Testament. And even in this passage, Paul refers to the people that they're caring for as a flock, like sheep. They are pastors over this flock. So really there are six terms in the New Testament all referring to the same group of individuals. Elders, presbyters, overseers, bishops, shepherds, or pastors. All of them, same group. Everywhere we see these terms referenced, we see them referred to uh, in this, this group in the plural. It's, it's not in the singular, it's always in the plural. It's always a group of individuals. The exception to this would be if someone refers to themselves, I am an elder in the church. Or perhaps they refer to the office as a singular, meaning a collective singular, but it's other than that, it's always used in the plural. In other words, it wasn't only in Ephesus that there were elders, plural elders. It was all churches. Luke tells us just a few chapters earlier in the book of Acts, in Acts 14.23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they, they had believed. Timothy was one of these we're going to see in just a moment. So the, the process for Paul in starting and establishing leadership in those churches is to do exactly this. The leadership began by appointing elders in each church to minister to those communities. We see the same thing in Titus 1.5. Paul tells Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So either Paul or one of his emissaries would go from church to church, identify multiple qualified men that could serve as elders in each church, and they were appointed to pastor the church. At the end of his life, Paul is sending Timothy as an elder to the church at Ephesus. 
The church at Ephesus was beset by people who are teaching false doctrine. It was just before he calls the elders to him. This takes place before he sends Timothy to Ephesus, where they're beset by people that are teaching false doctrine. And based on what Paul tells Timothy in his letters to Timothy, there are also some inconsistencies in their church order and their church practice. And so he reminds Timothy of a lot of things in his letter, in, his, in both of his letters to Timothy, about the order of the church. But we also find out that Timothy, it seems, was sent by another church to Ephesus. And Paul reminds him in 1 Timothy 4, 14, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So another church, represented by a council of elders, comes together, prays for, lays their hands on, and commissions Timothy to go to Ephesus to pastor this church. But we also know, because we've already seen the Ephesian elders, that Timothy is not the only elder or overseer in the church in Ephesus. In fact, Paul gives him instructions in regards to the finances of the church in his letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.17. He says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So the intention here is that there is a body of men who direct the affairs of the church. And though all of them are capable of teaching, as we'll see in a minute, some of them labor in it. Meaning that the lion's share of their time is spent doing the preaching and the teaching. So first thing we see is, we know, is that the, group, uh, the elders were a group of leaders in the local church. But the second thing we can see from the context of the New Testament is that the elders are different than deacons. They're two different groups of people. I want to mention this because it's so often confused in today's church structure. That elders and deacons are two separate but complementary groups in the church. And so they shouldn't be confused with one another. They have two distinct functions. First, you can tell just in the name of the office or of the role. The first is elders or overseers. They oversee the functions of the body. They oversee the people within the body. They oversee the ministry of the gospel as it goes out through the body. A deacon is a, a Greek word. The word deacon literally means servant. So deacons, under the auspices of the overseers, facilitate the ministry of the church by serving at the direction of the elders. And we see this in the deacon's creation in Acts 6. They're created by the elders of the church at Jerusalem, the first church to really have a plural group of elders is the church of Jerusalem. These elders are also the apostles. They are starting, the church is blown up to thousands at this point, that they are, all of these people coming and submitting themselves to the teaching of the apostles um, over them, and As they're teaching, uh, as the apostles are teaching, there are some Greek widows who are neglected 
in the daily distribution of the bread, one of the ministries that the apostles have started in the church, and one of the core functions that they see is their purpose and their mission is to feed those who are poor, namely here the widows who, are, uh, who, who don't have food or a daily distribution of bread. And so these Greek widows come to the apostles and they're complaining because they're being neglected in the daily distribution of bread. They begin voicing their frustration to the apostles. And the twelve apostles then call the congregation of the people together, and they say this in Acts 6-2, it's not right that we should give up the preaching of the Word of God to serve, that is, to deacon tables. And so by the congregational nomination, they call for the congregation, they lead the congregation to nominate for them seven uh, people who would function as deacons, who would perform the task, the service, of ministering to the widows and ensuring that all of them got a daily distribution of bread. And we would assume that would probably also mean cleaning up afterwards and taking care of everything else. And so they continue preaching and teaching the Word of God and also overseeing its work throughout the life of the congregation, life of the church. And now we know that these two groups of people, the elders and the deacons, grow, and some 30 years later, these two groups become established groups in the church and are vital to its function. Elders and deacons. And we're going to see the pivotal difference between these two in a moment, but that's who these men are as they're coming to meet Paul in Miletos. And as we take a further look, just a reminder, there are groups of leaders they're separate from one another, elders and deacons. But now let's answer the question, what do elders do? What is their function? Which is far more important for this morning. Let's turn our attention back to Paul's address to the Ephesian elders. Paul is reviewing his life. And he's going through his testimony before these men. And he's talking about what he's done before them as an example to them. And it's clear from verses 18 to 27 that Paul has put before these men his life, which is to be emulated in their own shepherding and teaching of the church. And just follow with me as I go through this passage. You're going to sum up what Paul is saying here, but just follow with me as I go through these, these verses from 18 to 27. In verses 18 to 19, he says that he has served the Lord before them while enduring persecution from the Jews. It's the first thing. I've, I've, I've served you and I've endured persecution from the Jews. In 19 to 21, he tells them that he has taught them the Word of God without compromising in any place that he's gone on its truth. Now, he tells you there that he didn't shrink back from it. The very fact that he includes that he did not shrink from it probably means that just like today, there might be some things that he has taught that have been uncomfortable for them to hear, some things that they didn't like to hear, some things that they naturally were going to recoil about and maybe seek to take his life because he taught and he did not shrink back from teaching those things. And largely, what were those things that he taught? He says they were repentance of sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And now, in verses 22 to 55, he says, I'm marching to my death. I'm going to die. I know that. And as he does, in verses 26 to 27, he does so with a clear conscience. He says, because he's faithfully taught the Word to all. And because he's done that, his hands are innocent from the blood of all. Which I take to mean, because he has faithfully taught the Word in every place, there are some people who have heard the Word and have responded positively to it. They have come into the kingdom and they are going to be saved on the day of judgment. So he is innocent of their blood. But the people that have rejected the words that he has spoken, I don't mean this group of people over here, I just mean the people that have rejected the words that he has spoken, he's innocent of their blood because he didn't hold back. It's not as though they would have come to Christ in any other way. He has told them every word of truth. He hasn't held back in any single way. But after this, he then shifts to charging the elders to perform the role of an elder. And he doesn't just give them a list of qualifications. He certainly does that in 1 Timothy 3. He certainly does that in Titus 1. But here he doesn't just give them a list of qualifications. He describes their job. He describes the nature of their work, their role, their function in the body of Christ. And so I want us to look at these first. He says, elders care for the church. Look in verse 28. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. The oversight that the elders have over the church is one of care. We'll see more of this kind of care in a moment, but for now, suffice to say that it's one of lifting up from underneath rather than domineering from above. In fact, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 1-3, he says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is, to be, that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. It's obvious that when Peter, when Paul, and the rest of the New Testament writers talk about shepherding, talk about overseeing the flock, they mean paying careful attention to the members that are there as much as they would care for their own soul. But I want you to notice something here in Paul's words in verse 28. Because we also see something of interest here. Remember there's that significant question that we should be wondering in the book of Acts. How is the church going to survive the death of Saul. How, how, this mighty missionary, the likes of which the world has not seen since, this mighty missionary, Paul, is about to die. How is 
the church of God going to survive his death? Paul gives an answer here. He says, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. In your Bibles, you may have the title of this book, Acts of the Apostles. But in reality, the theme of the book is the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It seems that the work of the Holy Spirit then and 2,000 years later to this very day is still to call out men from among the congregation who are gifted for the care and oversight of the souls of the members of the congregation. Well, what does that care look like? We've seen elders care for the church. What does it look like? Well, first he says it means that they defend the church against false doctrine. Look at verses 29 to 31. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples from after them. Therefore be alert. Remember that three, for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So first he says it's defending the sheep against the wolves. Paul knows that there's going to be people after he dies that are going to rise up from within the congregation that are going to seek to divide them, that are going to seek to separate them. Perhaps through false doctrine. We know that's true, that it's going to be through false doctrine. We also know it's going to be through gossip and slander. They're going to divide the church and separate them. But the astonishing thing about this little group of verses, I think, is that Paul says that the wolves are going to arise from among the elder body of the Ephesians. He says that right there. Some among you are going to rise up, fleecing the flock. Elders, it seems, are not immune to be intoxicated by influence. And having perhaps a small group of people that really like what they have to say, or perhaps like to listen to them, they're going to draw the congregation away. People who want to hear what they want to hear, who have itching ears, they're going to draw them away and lead them into false teaching. This happened then, and it still happens today. So then, how does the church, how can it possibly defend itself against a rogue elder who has the qualifications to teach the Scripture, who has the commendation from perhaps another group of people sent to preach to them, how does the congregation possibly defend itself against an elder who has gone rogue and seeks to fleece the flock that's among them? Well, the defense against that has already been laid out for us. There's more than one of them. It's an insulated group. It's a group of multiple people that check one another. Which is Paul's commission to them. Watch yourselves. Part of the elder's job is to watch the flock 
And another part of the elder's job is to watch out for sinful idolatry that creeps up in the hearts of the other elders. The absolute worst thing that a church could possibly do is appoint one singular person to be a pastor at the top. Not because, by the way, he might change the carpet color. God forbid. But because he might lead a whole bunch of people to hell. Second, or third, they teach and preach the word of God. Look at verse 32. And now I commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Their care for the congregation is exemplified in the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. I want you to remember, back to the beginning of this sermon series that we've been going through, where we talked about the Word of God out of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Remember that I said back then that the Word of God was the thing that has historically always created His people. Whether it was from the first pages of Genesis when he said, let there be light. Or perhaps it was throughout the Old Testament and his use of the prophets when he would put his word in their mouth and they would go amongst the people and they would, they would proclaim, thus saith the Lord. Or perhaps it was in John chapter 1 when his word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the gospel, full of grace and truth. The same Word of God who created His people, one new man out of two, Jew and Gentile. Or perhaps now, through His Word, the Bible, as it is preached and taught in churches around the world, God works through His Word. How then are the elders to exercise this level of care that we've already seen over the congregation as a whole? Remember what he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, just a few verses after he tells him what the Word is, he tells Timothy, preach the Word. It's also to see that the word that is being preached by the elders is also being lived out in the way the church practices all of the things that it hears in the Scriptures. So the way the church spends its money has gospel implications. Testifies what it believes about the gospel. The structure of the church, the overall ministry of the church, the evangelism of the church, the disciple-making of the church, the everyday ins and outs of the lives of the members of the congregation. All has gospel implications over which 
they are elders. They are overseers. Paul says the Word is able to build them up. And that Word that is able to build them up is the Word that they are to live by. They don't just preach it, they actually model it in their lives. That's the reason when we see the list of qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 about an elder, most of them are moral qualifications. You notice that? It's not he's able to read Greek. He's able to exegete from the Hebrew text. It's that this is the kind of man he is. They model it in their lives and they ensure that the Word is at the center of everything they do in their churches. Why is that the case? Because God's Word shapes His church. And when you look in 1 Timothy 3 at Paul's description of the qualifications of an elder and the qualifications of a deacon, both are given very similar qualifications. Both of them boil down to a kind of morality. So the the things you'll see in there are being like a one-woman kind of man, the husband of one wife, uh, having submissive children. Overall... The description of both is that they must be above reproach. However, there is one significant difference between the two, and that is that the overseer is able to teach the Word of God. That's not a qualification given to the deacons. There are churches today, particularly in the Southern Baptist Convention, that would call themselves deacon-led. There's little that represents a more fundamental misunderstanding of a church than that term. To think that anyone could possibly lead a church without being the ones responsible for rightly dividing the Word of God before the people is to basically say that the people lead themselves and God's Word is something that we hear from week to week. Rather, a church is centered on the Word of God. And a church that is centered on the Word of God is one whose elders preach and teach the Word and then oversee the Word's impact and ministry throughout the day-to-day life of the church, including its organization. Why? Because God's Word shapes His church. Now, let's talk. I know that this has historically been a contentious topic at EBC. Although, and and it's not just here, many churches, a lot of them SBC, but many churches around the country, around the world, this is a contentious topic. Although for 1,900 years of church history, including the first 100 years of Southern Baptist history, a plurality of elders was a given in church structure, in the way a church was built. And in more recent years, churches, including this one, have opted for a singular pastor. 
with perhaps some support staff. And so then the thought has been, not only here, but churches all over, that to change the leadership structure in the church to one that recognizes a plurality of elders as a body of men that lead the church and oversee all its function, it is argued, or has been argued, is tantamount to a power play or a takeover. This, I think, misses the fundamental purpose of the church. If you have in your mind that the church is a business, if you, if you think that in your mind, that the church is a business, that it's a nonprofit organization, if you have in your mind that the church is a business, then naturally what you're going to think are the goals of the church is to grow the church first, to put more people in the pews. And then, second, obviously, because it's a nonprofit organization, right? Increase revenue year over year. That's what organizations do. That's what nonprofit organizations are responsible for, right? Grow their organization and grow the revenue of the organization. So then a pastor proposing a change to leader, the leadership structure can only be seen as cutting you out of the equation and grabbing power for himself. And you have to then be thinking, well, that must be what he's up to. That's what he's after. And you know that this is your way of thinking about it if, one, you've resisted up to this point in the sermon the clear teaching of Scripture around the plurality of elders, and two, when you see attendance dropping and when you see dollars dropping, you get really nervous. In the modern church, statistical figures are worshipped more than carved ones. Infinitely more than carving. A person's missing from a pew. We won't call them. But when we see the dollars dropping, then we get nervous. Listen. Let's reform our way of thinking about a church. That is not our purpose. God grows the church. We preach the word make disciples. God grows the church. We leave that to Him. Our purpose as a church is to worship God and make disciples that make it to the finish line. That's our goal. That's it. And to be quite honest with you, all of us are going to stand one day before the judgment seat of God. Every single one of us. And we're going to give an account for every careless word, every bit of division we've ever sown, every thought we've ever thought. We're going to stand before Him and our whole lives are going to be laid out bare before us. We're going to give an account all of it. And I can tell you right now, there's going to be a whole lot of sin in my life that's laid out there. And as a pastor, as an elder in this church, 
I'm going to be held under much stricter scrutiny than any one of you. I have this to answer for. And if I don't have Christ standing in my place, I'm gone. Right there. There's no way I'll stand in judgment. There's no way you will either. No matter how good you think you are, there's no way you will stand. Every single one of us, compared to the holiness of God, will be sent to hell if Christ is not our advocate. That, that gospel has to be preached week in and week out here by the people who are sanctioned to teach it. Group of men called out by the Holy Spirit, affirmed by the congregation, appointed for the purpose of serving the body. For what purpose? So that every person here makes it to the finish line. Because here's the reality. You got one guy at the top and you resist that urge for the plurality of elders. Every person that walks in the room is less time you spend with that singular pastor. You get 15 in a room, there's a small chance that pastor might be able to talk to each one of you every week. You get 115 in that room, Nope. Might be once every six months. You get 160, might be once a year. Listen, that's our goal. To serve the church and ensure that each person makes it to the finish line. If we don't have a dollar to our name, if we don't have a building to meet in week in and week out, it's still the goal of the church. And a church that doesn't have a building and doesn't have a dollar to its name can still be a good, Christ-honoring church because that's what they're doing. The plurality of elders and the service of the deacons in the church is the Holy Spirit's way of promoting the making of disciples within the church that give it that lasting legacy to the end. And the refusal of churches to acknowledge proper biblical leadership is tantamount to the church cutting off its nose to spite its face. It's refusing ministry to itself. It's refusing an aid to make it to the finish line. It's refusing a pastor to be in touch with you regularly. It's less time that you spend with pastors who care for your soul. I care for each and every one of you. And week in and week out, I spend time preparing not only to preach, but also to teach. When it's not COVID, it's usually preaching or teaching three times a week. Then there's all kinds of things that come up from Sunday that I'm dealing with on Monday through Thursday. Counseling people in the office because of sin issues or through sin issues. On top of that, I've got to be a husband and a father. Both of which are qualifications of an elder. 
It's not that I don't care for you if I don't talk to you. It's plates that are spinning. You got to keep them spinning. And some of them are going to fall. But it's a, that's why it's a group of men who oversee the care of the church, that love you, that care for you, that the Spirit has prepared as elders because that's how the structure of the church lasts from generation to generation. Those elders hand it off regularly to younger people who can keep going just as new or younger people come into the congregation and take up the torch and the mantle that the older leave behind. It replicates from generation to generation. I don't want us to be the leaning tower of Emmanuel Baptist Church. I don't want us to be that. The church that people look at and suspect that next year will be the year that it falls. I want our church to be built on a foundation of leadership that is dedicated to the making of disciples. Men who rightly divide the word of truth, who are dedicated to the shepherding of the flock of God and caring for the souls of the members of the congregation. Because how a church is built matters. There are men within this congregation who right now love you, care for you, and teach you the Word on a regular basis. If you will read the qualifications for an elder in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, you will see that there are men in this congregation already that fit that qualification. 2,000 years from now, if the Lord tarries, I want people to look at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and I want them to say that that church has been here for 2,000 years because generation after generation it has maintained a solid foundation of leadership that has guarded the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because they cared for the gospel of Jesus Christ, have cared for the endurance of the saints that meet there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know how much tension there is with texts like these, with things that might be hard to hear. Father, I pray that you, through your Spirit, work in our hearts. Testify to the truth of your Word. Mold us and shape us into the body you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.